Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. How did we not talk about the author of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Do you know who it is? Roldal. It's uh, Ian Fleming, right? It's Ian Fleming. Yeah. Why? What? No, you didn't know that? I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, I just thought that was common knowledge. You need to stop thinking that everyone knows everything about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's obvious. What James Bond's all about, at least he used to be all about it. Well, he's kind of... I don't know, James Bond's go through a lot of metamorphosis, but uh, he's known for his gadgets, and well, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang's all about the gadgets. Singing, dancing, and coming revolutions. This was far more of a shock and revelation for me than apparently it is for either of you. Yeah. It's not a shock or revelation to me. It doesn't change my world in the slightest to learn this. It is a musical that uh, I was never going to watch or listen to. <laughs> it maintains a musical that I will never watch or listen to. Man, it's like we missed our opportunity. Having information about it is like pouring water into a sieve. It's just, there's there's no change to my state learning that it was written by Ian Fleming. You know, it's, it's you know, the thing is, my son finally got off of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and we were starting to watch other things he wanted to watch. And weirdly enough, I started to miss it. After a while, I was like, oh, we haven't watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in three weeks. Well, that's Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, and I was, I was like, well, you know, James, you want to watch it? He's like, no. And then only recently we started watching it again, and it was actually kind of fun. I actually kind of missed it. By the way, I um, when I was uh, giving my lecture today on the derivation for the proof for the power rule for calculus... At the end of my lecture today, I got a whole bunch of applause, which was a first. Congratulations. Yeah, I know. I was like, wow, I must be getting really good at this. You got applause from your students? Yeah, it was weird. I got like, yeah, half the class started clapping. I was like, wow, I must be getting pretty good at this lecturing business. I have so many questions. (laughs) First off, I want to point out that the by the way that started this phrase was doing a lot of work in that sequitur. Well, that's how I roll. You should know that by now. I'm very tired. I'm very tired today, people. <laughs> we didn't get to the point that Roald Dahl did the screenplay for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Similarly weird. Can you play the clip back for when I said Roald Dahl wrote it? You you want me to use it or not use it? I just, you know, I don't care about this this musical at all. And I just <laughs> guessed Roald Dahl. Wait, did, was, that a, was that a straight up guess? It was just a straight up guess. Wow. A little eerie. I just threw it out there. That was impressive. And, you know, you want credit for your students clapping at your derivation. I want to get credit for a <laughs> random guess about who wrote the movie. <laughs> Thank you, David. feel validated now. Today was a weird nexus of events for me, too. Not only did I get applause for the first time for one of my lectures, but also randomly after the lecture, one of my kids says, Mr. Scott, you have a great voice. Have you ever thought about running a podcast? <laughs> you're like the thought hasn't crossed my mind i i had a moment there where i was like do i want them to know do i well now you can't because they'll know about this anecdote that's true yeah now it's forever you've shut that door well if you keep this if you keep this part of the conversation in well i i did tell them oh so they'll hear it one way or another the kids now know so maybe one or two of them will start listening oh dear tom's student i want to address you personally We know you were just joking with the clapping and you were trolling your teacher. I know, but don't tell Tom. It'll break his heart. It it does put a very different color on that story, knowing that you are expecting your students to hear this. (laughs) It's going to be part of their grade. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... I, I the, by now they're pretty. I think they're pretty used to my rather deadpan and dry humor. So um, I, I I tend to be a little rough around the edges. So um, they probably are interested in getting in my good graces. 
You use more deadpan in the classroom than I think you do on this podcast. That's quite possible. I've seen you in the classroom. You do rely on deadpan there a lot. I, I mean, I, prob- I probably swear less on the podcast than in the classroom. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't swear much in the classroom. Much. That would be unprofessional. Well, okay. Maybe I said the S word once. But I forgot a negative. But... Since I've sworn in the podcast exactly zero times, if you uh, take into account the bleeps, then um, even if I that's, swore once, that'd be more. Bleeps mean you did swear. That's what but it, the bleep But it wasn't on the podcast. I don't agree with your definition. <laughs> Just because they couldn't hear the swear word doesn't mean that you didn't swear. <laughs> But they have no way to know. I mean, I guess <laughs> you did. The random bleep just showed up did. in the middle of the uh, the audio track. Like, I thought Tom was really great about editing the audio, but he's got these <laughs> random bleeps just scattered throughout. I mean, he did randomly bleep something I said that was not swearing. You see? Well, it, uh, I, see? I, I, it's, it's a I'm thing. trying to rein myself back from just letting loose a, a train of profanities just so I can get some more bleeps into this podcast. <laughs> more xylophones. Yeah, xylophones. You mean glockenspiels? The glockenspiels. No, xylophones. Yeah. I'm doing this for you, random student. Anyway, are we talking about buildings or something? What is this podcast? Yeah, we're going to talk about a building today. Should we move on to the buildings? Buildings. What building? The the one truly intact building of ancient Rome. There's only one of them? The one? Uh, yeah. I mean, there are, there are ruins of various sorts, but I think by acclamation, most people agree that the building we'll be talking about today is the far and away most preserved ancient Roman building there is. Most Roman things are pretty ruinous, if that's a word that I used correctly. We're talking about... The city of Rome or the entire empire? Mm, the in, most, uh, both, I think. I mean, there there are some. Oh, one is whipping the other. There, I mean, there are other Roman ruins um, around and some standing buildings. But as far as like a building that is most preserved, this one is still, uh, I think, probably the best preserved there is. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the Colosseum, obviously, not nearly as well preserved, right? Half of it's practically missing, right? That's what makes it cool. Well, yeah. What about the Hilton in downtown Rome? Um, ancient. Yeah, it's ancient. but uh, Not Roman ancient? Not Roman ancient, sorry. Oh, okay. The double tree? <laughs> It's not the same chain. So I, I should probably say this is a podcast about architecture and Minecraft and well, really, God knows whatever we feel like talking about. But you should bleep out the word God. It'll be funny. <laughs> I think that's even more <laughs> offensive. <laughs> um, but the. Um... <laughs> Jesus. No. <laughs> <laughs> All of these characters can be found inside the Pantheon, the building dedicated to all the gods. God, Jesus, right. Emin, Ket. Keep going. Uh, what, what are the others? Zeus, Odin, Coyote. Coyote? Do you think Coyote was worshipped in the Pantheon? Coyote? What we're going to be talking about today is the Pantheon of Rome. And I wanted to mention that while this is, of course, cathedral talk, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to restrict ourselves to just talking about cathedrals. Uh, you know, we've already talked about a few notable cathedrals, and there are many more in my long Rolodex of cathedrals that we'll be talking about in the months to come. Uh, but there are plenty of buildings that have contributed to the, you know, the ancient progression of architecture. And this one is right at the forefront of great innovations in architecture and just happens to be one of my favorites. And it was also the second thing I ever built in Minecraft. Uh, And again, we are talking about the Pantheon of Ancient Rome, which is the only truly fully standing building left, at least in the city of Rome, that is Roman. And we'll be talking a bit about why that is true. Uh, now let's see, David, you have been to the Pantheon before. Yep. What about you, Zach? No, I should be going sometime in the next two years or so. Oh, nice. Great. You know, once, uh... Specifically to the Pantheon and then coming straight home? Yep. Um, who knows? I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, people are inspired by their experience when they go in there and they may be completely fulfilled and say, I've seen all I need to see. Yeah. <laughs> So the Pantheon is, I believe, a sort of a Greek hybrid word where pan means all and theon means gods. 
It was originally built as a temple to all the gods of ancient Rome, and it is generally considered to be one of the world's first great massive masonry domes. It's actually a concrete domed building that, um, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, the ancient Romans were masters at the use of concrete. As a little bit of backstory to the Pantheon, the there were actually a couple different buildings all built on the same plot of land in ancient Rome. Uh, and there was an older Pantheon built by a famous uh, public figure in ancient Rome named Marcus Agrippa. And that building was built between 29 to 19 BC. It might have been called the Pantheon and we don't really have any better records to suggest otherwise, but I think I've read more recently that there might be some theories out there that these buildings, while we refer to them as the Pantheon and the older Pantheon, uh, they may have not necessarily been called that originally because that might have been not have been their original function. As with all things, the original Agrippa building was destroyed in 80 AD by fire. And then briefly, the emperor Domitian tried to build a replica of the original building, which was then also pretty soon thereafter destroyed by fire. And sank into the swamp. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking that too. Burned down, fell over, and then sank into the swamp, right? Yep. But then the fourth, no, it's actually the third one that stayed up. Uh, the third one is the present one that we see today, built by both emperors Trajan and Hadrian. Uh, somewhere between about 1113 to 1128 AD. So was it part of Hadrian's Wall? Uh, so H uh, Hadrian did also build Hadrian's Wall in Great Britain. Uh, and I think just generally... Just one long structure. <laughs> made, made it all the way to Rome. Yeah, well, generally, this is the golden... I think this is during the Pax Romana, where there are tons of just architectural marvels being built all around the empire. What years did you say? I don't remember the exact years of the Pax Romana, but... Uh, no, 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 the years of for so the, uh, Hadrian the, building it. Uh, well, so it was both Trajan and Hadrian. It was sort uh -huh. of be between the reigns, but the... The dates of construction are estimated, and again, these are approximations because records largely don't exist. We have to sort of do this with what very limited data there is, but uh, somewhere between 113 and 128 AD. Okay, yeah, that's that's pretty golden era for Rome, the, the larger empire anyways. Yeah. So David, you've been to the Pantheon before. Uh, describe what the first thing you see when you approach the Pantheon giant pillar oh okay not 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 connected to the building so you're referring to the the piazza that's in front of the pantheon yep uh, which is this sort of square that's bustling with activity and we've got yet another slide deck that we're looking at right now so we've got some pictures which i'll post online if you are interested in seeing some of these these are mostly all taken from wikipedia commons again so it's uh these are not all our own photographs but these are free and open for people to view Originally, the Pantheon was elevated with steps that you would have to climb to approach it. And nowadays, when you approach it, you're actually kind of slightly going down a bit of a, a crevice into a trough, and there's no steps left. And that's just because over time, layers of construction with the roads and the buildings around it, and just the general sediment have slowly crept up so that it almost looks like the Pantheon is ever so slightly inset to the ground. And in fact, this is actually kind of, I think, true about Notre Dame too, that there's no steps to enter Notre Dame. When you go into Notre Dame, it's just a straight shot. Uh, and I think once long ago, there may have been steps, but again, that ground has changed over centuries. So it's an interesting way how the terrain around ancient buildings changes while the building itself, you know, is where it is. And so that's what you're recreating when you build it in Minecraft too, right? You are you are changing the terrain a little bit here and there. Or would you like us to do that? Would you like us to get rid of half of the ground while you're in the middle of building it? Knock yourselves out. You can do whatever you want to the maps that I gave you because that's single player. No, I'm talking about the multiplayer. Oh, the multiplayer. Yeah, please don't mess with that. Authentic. Mm -hmm. So I think as most people imagine ancient Greek and Roman buildings... Uh, you know, classic buildings like the Parthenon from ancient Greece, not to be confused with the Pantheon we're talking about right now. Greek and Roman buildings were very rectangular in their floor plan or ground plan, and they usually had um, pediments. They had what? Never heard of a pediment. Pediments are the sort of triangular part 
at the top of a Greek roof, kind of like the gables. They're, 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 when you look at the Parthenon in ancient Greece, it's sort of a, a triangular pitch that the roof yeah. gently falls on either side, right? Right. Well, that triangular part that usually would have a lot of ornate sculpture on the front is just called the pediment. Is this where we get impediment? Why do you always ask me questions that you know I don't know the answer to? You do a lot of research for these things. I don't know what you did. Yeah. Impediment is a weird word. And so I was surprised to hear that pediment, a piece of that word, exists on its own. Because I'd never heard that before. Mm -hmm. The Pantheon in Rome also has this sort of facade, kind of like the Parthenon, with a triangular pediment resting upon uh, a series of columns or a colonnade. The difference, though, is very soon thereafter, behind the front, which is often referred to as the portico, you have a very different structure. You have a cylindrical drum that upon top rests this concrete dome we're talking about. And if you start to walk around the Pantheon today in ancient Rome... Looks old. It's Well, it looks old, and it's not a very attractive building on the outside. No, it's not at all. It, it does not look particularly friendly, especially beyond that somewhat ornate portico. It looks like a grain silo. Yes, it really does. It's, it's, it's a building that was built not too much with the exterior in mind. It is definitely a building that's all about creating an interior space that is majestic. And I think that is a big deviation from what was the priority for a lot of temples that came before. Like we again said, the Parthenon and many other Greek and Roman temples, they very much focus on ideal proportions of, you know, those rectangular buildings and their colonnades that flank them on all sides. Uh, but this building says, you know what, we're going to have an awesome interior. And it's a unique experience. Do you know um, the interior... Was it actually used for religious services or was it like, I mean, it has the hole in the ceiling. So for burning at, at an altar, I would guess. Mm -hmm. Or was it just like a, a monument of sorts? So again, the common assumption is that it was a temple dedicated to all the gods with many different niches surrounding the cylindrical interior walls for all sorts of different gods. But again, we have limited data sure. to back that up. There's so much that's been lost to history that I, I forget precisely where, but I read somewhere recently that it might not necessarily have been that there might be some evidence that it was actually not dedicated, at least at, at first, maybe to all the gods, but maybe it was actually originally dedicated to one or a couple gods or maybe even something else. The point is, it very well could have been that, but we just don't have the evidence to be 100% certain. I wonder when the word pantheon enters the the historical record, because like yeah. that word obviously has the connotation of all, but... yeah. Uh, wasn't necessarily called that immediately. Right. And again, and again, it may have been. Uh, just the point is that th there is... Um, disagreement. Yeah, disagreement over what precisely may be the truth. And if there's one thing, you know, historians like to do is come up with new theories. So, you know, um, who knows who's to say who's right right now. Uh, but then, of course, after the building was built, we're sort of getting towards the end of the, the ancient Roman... Pax Romana, the sort of the end of their golden age. And it's only a couple hundred years later that things really take a drastic turn. The ancient Romans uh, in the year 330 moved their capital from ancient Rome to Byzantium, modern day Istanbul, and they named it at first Constantinople. And during this time, much of the imperial power sort of transitioned more eastward. And this is when a lot of the decline began in ancient Rome. And then by the year 410, that's when the Visigoths sacked Rome. And I actually wanted to bring your guys' attention, but go down to the third to last slide. This is actually a graph that I find fascinating. This is a graph of the population of the city of Rome over the last really 3,000 years. I don't think I ever fully comprehended just how much of a drastic dip in population there was in the city of Rome once 
the empire fell apart and once Rome was sacked and the, you know, all the institutions that Rome had been accustomed to disappeared. I think the, um, the, the reason why it's in graph form is because it's probably a great way of articulating the story of the population. But as you were saying, the capital moved to Istanbul, Rome sacked. Mm-hmm. There's a, those are two labels on top of the population graph. And in between the two of them, you see it go from a peak that isn't matched until about the 1930s down to a pretty significant floor. Yeah. It's unlabeled, but probably about 5% of the, the peak or less. Yeah. I mean, at least according to this graph, it looks like their estimates at the peak during the Pax Romana, the the population of the city of Rome was somewhere close to about 1.5 million people, which again is massive for an ancient city, right? But then, you know, it's just amazing to see how far down that population plummets. It, It appears to be here once Rome is sacked by about the year 400 or even in the Dark Ages around the year 5 or 600, that the population is at best maybe less than 100,000. Yeah. And that's such a drastic change. Yeah, it's staggering. Yeah. I mean, it's no wonder that there are in Rome these layers of ruins on top of each other. Because the only way that this could be is that so much of the city must have just been abandoned. Like in a video game, just ruins where there's nothing, right? Old falling apart buildings where nobody lives, nobody exists. It would have been fascinating to see what the city would have looked like during those times. Detroit. Ooh. Ow. I don't think I can put that one in. We can't afford to lose that one guy. You can you can look up you can look up how many Michigan listeners we have. Anyway, the Pantheon, we have to understand when we look at this population graph, it survived these dark ages. I remember my Latin teacher in high school telling us a story. I don't know what evidence she had to back it up, but I like it. She said that when the Visigoths sacked Rome and plundered the city, they, of course, desecrated many different temples and structures and took many Romans for slaves. But when they entered the Pantheon, according to my Latin teacher, she says they were awestruck and they said, we are not going to touch this building. This is a special place. That's remarkably similar to your Notre Dame French Revolution stories, too, isn't it? Not exactly. They they kind of, uh, I mean, they didn't destroy it, but they, they certainly desecrated it quite extensively. But saved the Borden. It's too majestic a bell. We must save it. Well, I would love to think that that's the way that happened. But I think I also mentioned that it's also possible that it was such a big bell that they just didn't have the fuel necessary to actually melt it down. So they gave up. Um, Who's to say who's true? So anyway, how did the Pantheon actually survive this massive transition for the Roman population going from the capital of the ancient Roman Empire, a vast glorious city, to an almost completely abandoned city. And it's during the rise of Christianity. Uh, During the year 609, the Pantheon was consecrated as a Roman Catholic church. And to this day, it still functions as a Roman Catholic church. And for that reason, it is not the oldest, but one of the oldest churches in all of Rome. Wait, so you mean that it it has Christian services now? I I don't think I realized that. Yes, it actually has regular Christian mass at the Pantheon because all the statues that are in there now are, of course, no longer pagan gods, but refer to different saints. That I knew. I guess I, I didn't realize that they actually did services there. So is there a bishop seated there? So that's a good question. The Pantheon is a church, but it is not a cathedral. Uh, So it doesn't have a presiding bishop there, but it is one of those buildings that because of its ancient history really kind of transcends simply being, you know, a cathedral or a basilica. It is a special place because it may not be considered the oldest church in Rome, but it is definitely the oldest building that became a church in Rome. That's probably true, but I don't think that's as grand of a statement as you think. (laughs) It is definitely the oldest building that became a church. Put that one in Guinness. I would have put that on a (laughs) t-shirt. It's, it's, uh, I hadn't 
fully thought through the irony, the fact that it's still called that, but now it's a Christian church since its name means. Well, actually, I should I should clarify. It does have a Christian name. Ah. I, I need to actually let me give you that. That's important. oh, that's interesting. The Basilica of Saint Mary and the Martyrs. Okay. Yeah, okay. Right. yeah. So it is. It is a minor basilica. Okay, that makes sense. If that's not a basilica, like what? That's yeah. yeah. I mean, you're right. I, I again going back to our de- definition of basilicas. Right. Basilicas are designations to just anything special buildings of significant history or architecture. And they don't necessarily have to have any other qualifications to be considered a basilica other than simply the Pope has designated as a minor basilica. So yeah, okay. So it is the Basilica of Santa Maria uh, at Martres. Basilica of St. Mary and the Martyrs. Yes, thank you. In English. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so if a bishop doesn't preside there, mm. who does? It's a normal priest. Yeah, it would be, um, yeah, I believe a priest. Not every Roman church has a bishop. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, that was in the conceit. If a bishop isn't there, then who? It's the seat of a cardinal. It's the seat of a cardinal? Who is, I don't know my Roman hierarchy very well, but a cardinal is even higher than a bishop. It's a cardinal deaconry. Okay, I didn't see that. Where are you, where are you seeing that? The Wikipedia entry for the Pantheon. Huh. Okay, so actually I have never heard of a cardinal deacon before, so I'm going to have to look this up. I always thought that cardinals were generally the all the same rank, but apparently I'm wrong. Apparently there's different ranks of cardinals. What I do know is that there's a lot of overlap between rank between bishops and cardinals, and that actually I think technically many cardinals are also considered bishops too. However, I am not so certain about cardinal deacons. So I will have to look that up and maybe we'll come back to that next time. So I want to terrify you with the possibility that if it's a cardinal deaconry and cardinals are more important than bishops, Uh that this building is more important than a cathedral, Mm. more important than even Notre Dame. Mm. Mm. I see where you're trying to go with that. A A couple ways I can rebut that. One, I mean, with that argument, you could say the major basilica of St. Peter, St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican City is more important than Notre Dame. And you would probably be right, but I would also disagree with you and say Notre Dame is more culturally significant. But uh, that's just me. This is the content of our first episode. This is where <laughs> this is kind of full circle today. Episode 12. And we <laughs> refer to the first episode for this conversation in depth. <laughs> refer to the first episode where we talked about uh, which building gets more people. Um, minor basilicas don't really, I think, have ranks when they're compared. And I think we also mentioned in that episode that Notre Dame is actually also not only a cathedral, but considered a minor basilica by the Roman Catholic Church as well. So they're both actually basilicas. And actually, now that I think this up, I have to look something up. Somebody put in a filler. Can we have a new transition sound? Ha! Okay, Zach. So here's why you're just wrong on all counts. So... You were trying to suggest that the Pantheon is more significant because it has some kind of cardinal or at least a cardinal deacon, whereas Notre Dame is a cathedral because it has a bishop, right? Uh, That was my question. Yes. Well, actually, Notre Dame is so important. It's not only a cathedral, but in fact, its presiding bishop is in fact a cardinal. Oh, okay. So the the person at Notre Dame uh, whose French name... I probably shouldn't butcher it. Butcher it. <laughs> Andre Vingtois. Andre Vingtois. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, he is the Archbishop of Paris, and he is a French Cardinal of the Catholic Church. And this kind of goes to what I was saying a moment ago that bishops and cardinals are. It's you know okay. You know in Dungeons and Dragons where you have classes and then you have prestige classes? Like you have wizards, but then you also have like archmages or you have like... Are you going to claim that the that the cardinal is an archmage where a bishop is a wizard? I'm going to say that like bishop is like the main class and then cardinal is like the prestige class. It's like a template placed on top of what was already an existing class. Your students are learning a lot about you today. I know. 
this is going to go bad very fast. We we need um, this is hashtag not a Christian podcast. We need someone who actually understands the church because I don't I don't know if every single cardinal is a bishop. I don't think so. I think all cardinals are bishops. I think they are actually. I get except for I'm not so sure, certain about these cardinal deacons. I've never heard of a cardinal deacon before. Yeah, I don't know what that is. So I I'm going to have to come back to that one. I find I find that odd. But I also want to point out that the cardinal who's based at Notre Dame, his last name is translates to 23. Oh, it is? Vantois? That, that's just 23 in French. Don't, don't make fun of last names. Last names are stupid all around the globe. Like Russell, I'm not going to pan any Russells. You guys are cool. But Russell means the sound an animal makes in a bush. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did just pan them. No, no, it's... Like, you, you could be a cool person and have a stupid name. Like, you didn't get to... Maybe some people do get to choose their name. And if you choose 23 as your name, that is some ultra flex right there. Well, that is this, that is weird enough that it earned its own sentence in his Wikipedia page where it says his surname, which is French for 23, is probably from an ancestor who, as a child or a baby, was abandoned and found on the 23rd day of the month. That's awesome. That is totally awesome. <laughs> that is a weird explanation. And it's Wikipedia. There's no citation for that. W- why would someone's last name that's number-based mean that they had an ancestor who was abandoned on that? Like, that's okay. Uh, you know, that is weird. I'm sure there's weirder, though. So I'll buy it. I'll buy it. I mean, our last name means rubble, so. Yeah. So. Blacksmith. Yeah. That's cool. Let's actually talk about the architecture, please. So a couple interesting things about the portico on the front of the Pantheon, which again emulates that sort of Greek and Roman temple vibe with again the triangular pediment and then the colonnade with a bunch of columns. Unlike say the columns at the Parthenon, the Pantheon's columns are monolithic. Do you want to take a gander what I mean by that? What monolithic means? It means single stone. The columns are Egyptian granite. And so that means that not only are they monolithic, but they came all the way from Africa. So they had to get floated across the Mediterranean by boat, I believe. (laughs) By donkey. (laughs) The donkey's just swimming across the Mediterranean. (laughs) The things I do for you people. I mean, he doesn't know for certain. So he said, I believe, to hedge his bets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. And apparently, I apparently they wanted even bigger monolithic columns than they originally got. Even bigger donkeys. This is the biggest that they were able to come up with. If we could see the portico in ancient times, it would be much more ornate than it is today. Like I mentioned before, the pediment normally on, like, especially Greek and Roman temples, would have lots of figures, statues, all up in the triangular portion. Uh, And it's completely barren now, um, but you can see lots of tiny little holes that sort of indicate where probably different statues would have been fastened to it way back when. Do you think they're in the British Museum? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Probably. It's very plausible, too, that the the grain silo back portion, main portion, also was decorated on the outside, too, and just worn away, and we just don't have any records of it. Well, actually, go down to slide 13. Now, this is, of course, just an artist's best interpretation, but this is probably the best one I've found so far that suggests possibly what the Pantheon would have looked like back in ancient Roman times. And yeah, David, kind of like you were saying, it wouldn't have been super more ornate than the kind of grain silo exterior that we see now, except for sort of the upper third of the ring. Yeah. Do you kind of see how they have sort of that more kind of marbled out um, faux columns that sort of wrap around the top there? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if that is meant to be faux. Stenciling. Yeah, it does look like stenciling. There's, there's a name for this. I actually just looked this up like a day ago, and I'm angry at myself that I can't remember. There's a name for faux columns that aren't actually columns, but are supposed to kind of appear like columns instead are just sort of resting against the side of a wall. Is that something the Romans did? Uh, yes, all the time. Huh. In fact, it's all throughout the inside of the Pantheon as well. Huh. And you can actually see those if we look at some of these pictures in just a moment. Oh, yeah. uh, but again, like when you take like just the edge of a wall and it looks like a column, but it's not actually a column. Yeah. Pilasters. That's what they're called. Pilasters. Faux columns are called pilasters. So should we walk inside? 
Yeah, let's take a look on the inside, because that's the whole point of the Pantheon. The Pantheon is not about having a grand exterior, it's about having a grand interior. The underside of the portico is also very barren. You can see the wooden trusses holding up the roof. The roof would not have been wooden like it is today. Uh, it used to be sheathed in, I think, bronze, but much of its metal from both its roof and its original doors was stolen. And in fact, as the legend goes, you've been to St. Peter's Basilica, David, in Vatican City. And if you know, under the giant dome of uh, St. Peter's Basilica, there is a great, I think it's called a baldachin. The giant, not quite altered monument thing. I don't know how to describe that. And this is sort of a common thing for much of these ancient Roman structures. Much of their materials were sort of removed from the exteriors to then build a lot of the other buildings that were built later. It's the same story for even the pyramids. You know how the pyramids uh, in Egypt are not the smooth surfaces, but instead the jagged surfaces we see today from one tier to the next. And that's because all the smoothed limestone that was on the surfaces that was taken over many years by people who pillaged it to build other things. Eh, I don't know that. Yeah. Or at least in part. I mean, some of it also just fell due to weathering, but uh, much of it was stolen. Cultural appropriation. Yeah. So when we go inside the Pantheon... Zach has skeptical face. Skeptical of what? Skeptical of the inside of the Pantheon? No. The stealing slash cultural appropriation link. I was culturally appropriating the phrase cultural appropriation. Listeners, Zach spends a lot of the podcast making faces that you never get to see. That's true. I only have one face. Maybe this is why Zach earlier said, hey, if we put this podcast on YouTube, are they going to see my face? <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have to include that because you're referencing it and let's put out both things. I don't have to say that. I can make it all just sort of, you know, be a hodgepodge. Inside. Inside the Pantheon, we have the Great Rotunda, the Great Domed Space of the concrete dome over the cylindrical room. The dome is striking. It has what are called coffering that go all the way around it. That's sort of these squares that are inset uh, in a very grid-like pattern. Big squares that get smaller and smaller as they sort of come to the apex of the dome. And at the very top of the dome is the oculus. And the oculus is an open hole at the very top of the dome that allows light as well as weather, rain and other elements to come into the chamber. And there's special drainage systems that the ancient Romans built in to accommodate for this so it doesn't ever flood inside or anything. And all of these elements are key elements to making sure that the dome actually stays up. The coffering I just mentioned a moment ago where you know you have these sort of recessed squares all around the dome that actually provides more structural stability to the dome. Hmm. Not only does it reduce the weight of the dome because you've cut out places where otherwise you would have heavy concrete, you know, reducing the weight of the dome is always important to make sure that it is less stressful that way. But also there's something about when you add more intricate structures to different objects with different, you know, bumps and curves and creases that it just tends to make objects more rigid. It almost It's almost like a gridded frame that just helps that dome stay up. And you, you said that the entire dome is concrete. Is that right? Yes, the entire dome is concrete. Looking at it, granted our pictures don't zoom in too close, but you really can't see any seams at all. Yeah. I wonder how many pieces this actually is in. Yeah, well, there is there is an interesting illustration I had not seen before until recently. Scroll down to slide 12, and slide 12 has a very interesting depiction of sort of the interior structures that are holding the thing up. Do mm. you see how you can see in the sort of background, you can still see the gridded coffering, but then what this picture depicts is a sort of interlocking series of arches yeah. that that are all kind of tiled almost like the tiles of a roof and it almost looks like they have sort of some bricks worked into there as well there's probably some kind of combination between brick and concrete going on there but again this is before some more modern dome building masonry techniques have been developed in particular i'm referring to uh the principessa that was used at florence's duomo uh, we'll talk about that another time. So the ancient Romans had this sort of interlocking arch system that is what they pulled off to get this to work. 
And in fact, if you also take a quick look at, say, maybe slide five, if you look very closely, maybe zooming in on the edge of the grain silo, right? You know, we keep making fun of this just very cylindrical exterior. Do you see in the masonry how, especially at the top, you can see right into the masonry, these arches of bricks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same idea. Those arches of bricks are sort of this internal structure that are supposed to sort of help redistribute the heavy weight of the dome rather than just how normal stacked bricks would have been. I presume this has been proven to be fairly structurally sound. By time. Yeah, I mean, it's lasted almost 2,000 years. Yeah. To put it in perspective, this building is more than twice the age of Notre Dame. So it's it's a very old building. Old, old, old. Is there, what, is there another dome that's been around for about two millennia? No, this this is it. This is, this is at least certainly not at this scale. Sure. Um, and I'm just generally not aware of any surviving domes that are even really from that old age anyway. Right. Um, yeah. Has, uh, this, uh, this is maybe a little bit more for the, the bottom half of the room below the dome, but has there been restoration work uh, on the inside uh, that you know about? I know, obviously, like you say, um, switched religions at some point. So, uh, uh, right. uh, obviously, the decorations and things uh, change for that. But, like, has there been structural restoration at all? Well, uh, I know that even the, the ancient Romans had to do some major restorations. I don't know to what extent it was structural but we said that the original construction finished in 125, and we do have some documentation that even the ancient Romans had to do some kind of restoration just by the year 202. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it it is, I think, without question that the Pantheon would not be here today if it hadn't been cared by the watchful eye of the Catholic Church, which took it over once it got permission from the Byzantines. Uh, in the year 609 to convert it into a church. Hmm. And uh, with the great resources, of course, they've been able to fund it and do some kind of work to it. But um, again, to a, what kind of structural work that it still requires to keep it stable, I, I don't fully know. I get the impression that it is surprisingly resilient. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's drum. The drum refers to the cylindrical shell that the whole... Uh, exterior of the building has the dome resting on is just so thick. It's a very thick structure that has this dome sitting on it. So it's kind of like a building where they were taking no chances. It's like a building that like, we're going to build super, 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 super thick walls to then rest this dome on, uh, which is very impressive, but not to the same level of finesse that many of the later domes will look at on other cathedrals and basilicas. Uh, again, St. Peter's Basilica we talked about uh, does not sit on a just a big cylindrical drum. It sits on four large columns that are then flanked by, you know, large, large naves and aisles. So, you know, there's many more intricate ways that domes are later placed on right. top of buildings, whereas this is a much simpler structure. It's very impressive and it's very elegant, but it is generally simple. It is a cylinder with a dome sitting on it. So that offers fewer ways to mess it up, I guess. So I did happen to build the Pantheon in Minecraft long ago. And this is probably the build that is most authentic to how it was when I first built it in 2011. And so we've got Zach and David who have loaded the old map and they're zooming around it now. And in fact, they can even view the different stages of how it has looked in different years when I built it. I like how you, when you're using the phrase, this is the most authentic, which I assumed you were going to say authentic to the original building. But no, you're just saying authentic to yourself 10 years ago. Right, yeah. right. Authentic to how I built it back in the day. He was not using concrete in the ceiling. That's a good point. Hey, there was no concrete back then. Let's take a look at the first one. This building actually built in survival. I think out of all the buildings I've built in Minecraft, the Pantheon has been the easiest one to build as close as possible to a one-to-one -one scale structure because you can pretty closely approximate the true curvature of the dome and the interior space. I didn't mention this earlier, but the space inside the rotunda is supposed to perfectly fit, if you could, 
a nestled globe or a nestled sphere. In other words, the upper dome would make the upper half of a sphere and then the lower cylinder would just be the same height and would be able to contain an equally sized lower half of the sphere. It's supposed to emulate basically a globe. But if the Earth was flat, why would they put a globe? The Earth is flat, so you need a globe somewhere. Oh, okay. And uh, I'm pretty sure at least the ancient Greeks knew the Earth was round, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. You're, you're just being facetious. But Zach's saying we have accumulated in our knowledge since the ancient Greeks, and we have now realized that they were stupid. Sitting on the back of a giant tortoise. When I first built the original Minecraft structure, it was the first time I ever built a dome. So I did the calculations myself for how to figure out where to place blocks to actually create that dome-like structure. Did your students applaud? Uh, They will one day. But when I actually uh, placed all the blocks, I didn't try to do anything ornate. Building a dome in Minecraft is one thing, but trying to build patterns along the surface of the curvature of the dome is completely different. And I tried to do that in the later version, uh, but I still feel like one day I want to go back to it and make it a little bit better. Basically trying to emulate like the coffering. It would be very difficult to emulate the coffering at this scale, but I do give some attempts at it. I notice you don't seem to... You don't seem to use half blocks. Yeah. At the very least, you don't use half blocks for creating an extra layer. You stick with the the normal one by one by one block for almost all of it is there a mathematical mm-hmm. reason that's preferable i would have i would have guessed that more half blocks to provide that extra level of dimension would be helpful absolutely and one that's an issue of skill i was not as good of a builder back then so i was thinking just mentally more in terms of the single blocks of building shapes and structures but also just you have to remember this is still 2011 and 2012 there were not that many half blocks in game in fact i think the only half blocks in the game at this time were cobblestone half blocks smooth stone half blocks which is sort of the white outline stone that makes the floor and some of the columns and then uh sandstone half blocks i think Maybe wood too, but I think for the most part, that was just about it. So there wasn't that much to play with. And for that reason, I was timid to try to do too much with it out of fear that it would be too samey. Even in your most modern version of it, though, you use the half blocks for visual distinction yeah. um, to break up the the pattern. But you don't use them for structural reasons for the dome. From what I can tell, it looks like you s- keep the same pattern through all three that you, you don't mm. use that extra half dimension to make the the curvature smoother for instance exactly and we're not going to talk about this today but like i was sort of alluding to i'm still not quite happy with the final form that this is in out of all the buildings i built so far even though i did update it fairly recently i really should have and intended to use half blocks to do better curvatures for the interior part of the dome you get a much smoother exp- uh, a much smoother dome if you use a half block structure rather than a whole block structure. Yeah. And in fact, I have done that technique with other domes before. I think the reason I didn't at first was like I said, this is only one of two original buildings from 2011 that I actually built in survival, and I wanted to preserve the mathematics that I had come up with 10 years ago. Yeah. And I was sort of like, you know what? It's not as perfect this way, but I'm proud of what I did 10 years ago, even if it's not perfect. And I kind of want to keep that. Sure. But I am also interested to see just how good this thing would look like one day if I really did update the mathematics. Because I, again, I'm a better builder 10 years now than I was back then. I mean, it almost kind of works since the Pantheon is is a more rudimentary building yeah. to, to make it look a little bit more rudimentary constructed. Fits the emotional theme, at least. Yeah. Well, it looks nice. Thank you. Although there there are a lot of torches around here that can be converted to candles now. That's true. Like I said, the game ever is always updating. And I think probably the part of it that I'm least happy with, that if I were to do an update again with another version, probably the material that I would use is oxidized copper for the roof on the top. 
because the dome, I'm not entirely certain what kind of metal alloy is used for the roof presently, but I think at least in game, a partially oxidized copper would be much closer than the stone brick that I currently have for the exterior part of the dome. Not to not to derail the conversation too far, but did you see the mud block and the mud brick block in 1.19? Yeah, I I I saw yeah the mud block. It's I I forget how they'll be constructed, but um I forget does that come in stair varieties and slab varieties? I don't know. Theoretically, the mud brick might, but not the mud. Not the mud. Yeah, because is this going to be a part of the new swamp biome or jungle biome? I forget which. The mud will, but the mud brick is a player-constructed block only because mud bricks okay. don't naturally form. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure I'll think of something for that. I'm glad that we're kind of moving in a way. Like, terracotta was always a great idea, but again, they really should have added slabs and stairs to go with the terracotta. And I always thought that most of the terracotta is just a little too bright. They needed something a little bit more dull for a lot of the earlier dwellings that people might want to emulate. You know, with sort of like a maybe an Aztec or New World vibe. And so what's the answer? Mud. Mud. You hear that, parents? Your kids can now play in the mud and not get dirty. I think the rationale was more what Tom was saying, that so many people who play Minecraft uh, are playing in a, a setting that isn't the same sort of like European setting that the game originally was influenced by yeah and a lot of people might be living in a house that uses mud brick as its construction right and they can more easily see themselves in the game if they can build their house in the game it's a great point i suppose that's a better answer than they wanted kids to be able to play in the mud maybe i think also if i were to do another final version of this i would be tempted to try to do something a little bit closer to maybe trying to emulate the artist's interpretation of what it would have looked like in ancient Rome with the statues and the, you know, far more ornate pediment. I think that would be fun. You've gotten a lot better about mixing your textures. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we were talking about was the use of painting and gradients with add-ons. Yeah. Would you consider like making this like a gradient of textures instead of just um, like a random noise map of textures. Yeah, I, I think that would be another good thing to try. Um, I, I'm not too experienced with using gradients yet. That is definitely something I'm learning how to do better. To the audience, one of the main ideas with doing gradient textures in Minecraft is you select a sub-selection of blocks from all the options and you try to pick enough blocks that give you just a nice little spectrum of lighter and darker shades of certain colors that all just jive well together. And you do that to try to show different weathering. Like if you have maybe really dark surfaces close to the ground that are dirty from muck and soot, and then it gets lighter as you get closer to the sky. Um, yeah, I think I would like to do something to that effect, especially on the exterior part of the drum. What do you think of the roof of the portico? Do you like the upgrade I did for that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I'm going out right now to look at it. You have to. It takes a little while to fly from one to the other. Yeah. The the switch to wood. Yeah, the switch to wood because it is wood today. I didn't even really when I first built it. I didn't pay too close attention to what the roof was originally built out of. I didn't realize it wasn't like just white stony like looking. It's actually wood. I, and it's, you know, the thing about doing wooden roofs in Minecraft is I, I tend to find a roof that is entirely one kind of wood, just a little too boring. I agree. It needs to get broken up with different shades. So this is about the different kind of, this is the best lattice I was able to come up with that I was happy. Did you say that the original was not wood though? The wood's a modern? Yeah, it's true. It would have been sheathed in some kind of bronze or copper, I think. So this is a confusing hybrid of ancient and modern then, what you built here. Well, not necessarily. I think the color, I was actually trying to emulate basically the colors of how it is uh, okay, today. Okay, fair enough. Fair with, enough. I, I guess the one exception there is, I don't believe there are statues in the upper ring of Nietzsche's on sort of the second tier anymore. They're just those open right. blank squares or they're not windows, but they're sort of squares. Uh, and I was just like, well, that looks cooler with statues. So I put some I armor, armor stands up there. But yeah, I think I would maybe like to try to do just a fully Romanized building sometime of this one. 
And again, I, I think out of all the buildings I've built, for whatever reason, this one translates the best into a one-to-one -one scale in Minecraft. There's something about the ratios of the sizes of the columns, the relative ease of making the scale of the dome. A Pantheon just translates very well to Minecraft, in my opinion. So one of the things that stands out in the picture that is almost impossible to do in Minecraft is that the interior of the dome is super bright. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the sun comes in. I'm not using any custom shaders right now, um, but I can only imagine it would make it even darker. The inside of your dome is super dark. Yeah. Even in the even in the daylight. Yeah, even in the daylight. Yeah. Hiding lights is probably the hardest thing to do. <laughs> to do in Minecraft, yeah. <laughs> in Minecraft, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Yeah, in the, in the next Caves and Cliffs, so the one that's coming out in like two months or so, yeah. it, it might have dropped by the time that this, this episode airs. Yeah. They're coming out with a, a creative block that is uh, a light block that you can't see. Oh. It just emits light. Oh, I had no, oh man, I had no idea. Oh. I didn't hear about that. Yeah. Like, is it just called creative light block or something? I don't know what it's called. Um, I could, I could uh. check it up. Um, the only question there is how do you locate it once you've placed it? Like, oh damn it. Where did, where did I put it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't like if It's like, I, I want to destroy it. You know, it's like, I can't find it. <laughs> Maybe it has an outline. It's, it's got, so it comes in 15 different light levels so mm -hmm. zero to 14 oh nice and so each of them has a different icon and i don't know the way to toggle it on and off but from what i've seen um mm -hmm. you can see the light block with its light level with a little block marker um if yeah. if some flag is set to true and you can't see the block marker if the flag is set to false yeah you can only see the light so essentially, if you put on special goggles. Well, this is actually a good transition point right here. Why don't you guys open the two-minute video that I've posted on our website for the Pantheon? Uh, I actually put together a very brief little tour that flies around the outside a little bit and actually flies right into the portico and then goes inside. And it has all the best shader packs that I could get to work right turned on. And I think... What really makes this build work the best with a shader pack is getting good god rays or crescupular rays to emanate from the oculus in a nice shaft of light to illuminate sections of the floor as the Minecraft sun passes over the sky. If you look, if you look at the older uh, from our slideshow earlier today, you see several images of the dome where the sun is shining in the dome and then you've got a spot on, say, the wall or a spot on the dome or a spot on the floor from just the direct light emanating from that oculus. And you can't get anything like that with just the basic game. You need to do some kind of shader pack. This is exactly what ray tracing was designed for, but uh, I, in this case, I used a shader pack to do it. I also um, purchased the Gladiator soundtrack, not, not as a recording, but as, as a music score. I then inputted the notes into Sibelius to then create the little background piano music of The Might of Rome, which I thought fit well for this short little video. This is mostly Tom giving his explanation for why he thinks he, he, won't, he can't be held liable for the music in the video. Two minutes on the nose. I like the 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 drone equivalent shot of coming through the Oculus. Yeah, I like that too. I also like for these videos, this is the second one I did. I'm working on one right now, a third one that's just taking forever because it's a lot more complex than this one. I'm working on one for the Coliseum right now. One day it'll get posted. Uh, but for all of these, as a little artistic style, what I've tried to do is I've tried to make them perfect loops so that if you start the video over again, it picks up exactly where it left off. Yeah. Cool. That'll work well for YouTube. Yeah, and it perfectly in for everything, including the clouds. So like everything is exactly where it was, which takes some interesting creative photo uh, video editing where you crop the video at the loop point, not where you actually see the video start, but you crop it somewhere at a halfway point that is impossible to tell that it's actually a, a, a restart of the video. Ah, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that way, when you actually cut something that was a single scene in half, you can get a perfect, what appears to be a perfect transition with the same clouds in the same spot. Yeah, like one of those movies that uh, tries to make it look like they're one shot, even though uh, they're totally not. 
Birdman. I've never seen Birdman. Is that good? I liked it. You probably wouldn't. Yeah, that's that's accurate. I feel like I, I feel like I'm being judged right now. You are. Students of Tom, don't show him Birdman. That one particular student from earlier. <laughs> I, I, I thought you were about to say students of Tom, don't watch Birdman. But it was students of Tom, don't let your teacher see Birdman. <laughs> don't force Birdman upon your teacher. <laughs> are you already, you're telling my students they need to be censoring me. I love it. Great. So okay. the youth are for. He'll assign you more homework if you force him to watch Birdman. Okay. But not if you make him watch Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law. <laughs> it's a show called Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law. I don't know the reference. I kind of do. I, I don't know. I just thought, I thought everyone knew Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> I mean, it's such, a, it's such a popular thing. And full circle. That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredameDeParis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building.